If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave to them and get their attention and uh, they'll be happy to get a Bible uh, into your hands so you can not only hear the word of God, but follow along with your own eyes this morning. Seeing is believing. That isn't always true, but it's always true when you're reading the Bible. And so we want you to be able to see that. Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we come this morning to the first of his seven statements that he made while hanging upon the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this living, eternal book that we turn to this morning. We acknowledge that it's going to outlive the heavens and the earth, that your word is going to have the final say in human history. We thank you, Lord, for the priceless revelation that it is in all of the things that it speaks of, but most especially the revelation that it is of our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that as we study it this morning, that you would be very, very active as the teacher, opening this passage up to us, Lord, give us, giving us an understanding of what Jesus is saying here. And then, Lord, it not only giving us that understanding, but then producing within our very spirit, in our hearts, in our minds, a great appreciation for the truth that is revealed here. We look forward now in these coming minutes to sweet communion with you through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion that he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane following a night in prayer there. He was then tried and beaten and spat upon by the Jewish religious leaders. And following that, under Pilate's orders, he was scourged, after which he was delivered to the Roman garrison for crucifixion. And they stripped him of his clothes. They put a scarlet garment on him. They made a crown of the branches of a thorn bush, which they then pressed upon his head, and because a king must have a scepter, a reed was mockingly thrust into his right hand, and then they kneeled down before him in mocking worship. And then they proceeded to spit upon him, and they took the reed from his hand and began to beat him on the head with it repeatedly, driving the thorns even deeper into his scalp, and then they led him away to be crucified where three great iron nails, six inches long, were driven through his hands and through his feet for the purpose of securing him to that cross. 
And after which the cross with Jesus upon it was raised and dropped into a hole and secured. And so began long struggle for every breath under the weight of what had to be excruciating pain. And by the time sinful man, both Jew and Gentile, got done with Jesus physically, the Bible says he was unrecognizable for who he was. He was so disfigured, the Bible says, that not only was he unrecognizable for who he was. In other words, it would be the kind of thing where if you were an emergency room doctor, an emergency room nurse, and your child was brought into uh, that after an accident where you would see the child, your child so marred and so disfigured that you wouldn't even recognize the child as yours. Now, that's a considerable disfiguring of his face and of his body to produce that kind of, uh, of, uh, of physical uh, change upon him. But the Bible also says that the disfiguring was so great that to look at him was to produce kind of a involuntary reaction of turning away at the very sight of him. Again, the kind of thing where you come upon the scene of maybe a auto accident where the damage that's been done to the human body is so grisly that as you look over it and you see the damage that has been done, I mean, anyone that has a compassion for human beings, a love for human beings, there's that quick whisper of, oh, my Lord, and then the, the great, great push to then turn the gaze away from what it is that we're seeing. And again, and let's, so that you don't think that I overstate it, it is Isaiah who tells us as much concerning the scene in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, where we're told of the Messiah, of Jesus, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. But then on top of all of this, not content with the mutilation of his physical body, the Jewish religious leaders and those who were sympathetic toward them then endeavored to bring a comparable damage upon his heart and upon his mind. And thus they proceeded to lash his heart and his mind with their blasphemies and with their mocking and with their revilings. They publicly mocked his teaching. They publicly mocked his claim to be the Son of God. They publicly mocked his claim to be the King of Israel. They publicly mocked his claim to be the Savior of the world. And they publicly reviled his claim even to have a relationship with God much less to be the Son of God, for they declared that if he had a relationship with God, then surely God would deliver him from the torment that he found himself in the middle of. And surely twelve legions of angels must have been waiting for just a single word to bring all of this shameful treatment of the Son of God to a stop. But all the while that Jesus hung upon the cross, no word came. But then his lips began to move. There was a sound. 
a word. What's he saying? What's being offered from that scene and from that man on the cross? And it's a prayer. And it's not just any prayer. It's not a prayer for help. Not a prayer for their destruction, but a prayer for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Seriously. He prayed that on the cross in the middle of all of that. You just think, wow. That is his response to all of this, all that they had done to him. That's his concern in the middle of all of this. Their forgiveness. My forgiveness, your forgiveness. And I'll tell you, I think it's astonishing. And again, I repeat the word all the way through the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. I think to myself, how humbling. Everything he said, everything he did humbles me as I watch and as I read it. You see, all the description of Jesus' suffering, both physical and mental and emotional, it all accomplishes something in our lives. But one of the great things that the Bible's description of his physical and emotional and mental suffering upon the cross merely sets the table for the first of his seven statements made upon that cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think it's very important to realize that this prayer of Jesus was prayed in that context, in that condition. And I think to know that that was his physical condition, his mental condition, his emotional condition, gives us an even greater appreciation for this great prayer of Jesus upon the cross and I think about it as we can look at it and say yes and, and have it be theologically put it in our minds. Yes, the first of his seven statements was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When I realize the condition of his life, the condition of the scene from which that great statement of his, that great prayer came forth, it helps me appreciate it in a way that I, I never otherwise would. You go to a jewelry store, and they bring out these great and beautiful gems. They typically display them against a darker backdrop in order to see and appreciate the fullness of their beauty, typically a very, very deep purple or perhaps an emerald green. And it's against that backdrop that a person can appreciate the fullness of the beauty and the multifacetedness of the beauty and the stone that they're looking at. But I think that it's only as we view this gem stone of Jesus' statement, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, against the backdrop in which it was uttered that we have any chance of appreciating its beauty and its value, and the way that it deserves. These words are beautiful, and they're astounding, not only because of who said them, 
but also because of where they were set and the circumstances that surrounded this prayer. And here we see Jesus' concern for our forgiveness. While he hangs on that cross, he makes no mention of his pain. He makes no mention of his humiliation. He makes no mention of his shame. But first and foremost, his concern is for our forgiveness. His single great concern, while in the middle of all of that, was for the souls of his murders. And all of that was just as God had prophesied through the prophet Isaiah what would be true of the coming Messiah 740 years before Jesus was even born. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many. And then here it is and made intercession for the transgressors. The greatest need in the life of any sinner, the Bible declares each of us to be sinners. We've all been less than perfect in our life. The greatest need for any sinner is for forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins. Even sins of ignorance are in need of God's forgiveness. Jesus died on that cross to provide forgiveness for every sin of every man, every person, even the sin of crucifying the very Son of God. Well, someone might say, who was Jesus praying for? I mean, how far reaching was his prayer here on the cross? Well, surely it included the Roman soldiers at the cross. They knew they were doing wrong, but they did not know the magnitude of the sin that they were committing in crucifying the Son of God. Surely it included the very large crowd of Jews who had followed Jesus to Calvary. They knew they were doing wrong, but they didn't know how great the wrong was, that they were engaged in the very crucifixion of their Messiah. But both apostles Peter and Paul also ascribe it to the Jews, this ignorance, this to the Jews in Jerusalem and their rulers. Peter, in preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3, said, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Paul Speaking in the same kind of a context, said men and brethren in Acts chapter 13, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of salvation has been sent for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath having fulfilled them in condemning him. And then later to a Gentile audience on Mars Hill in Athens, the Apostle Paul would again raise the same thing of sinning in ignorance. In Acts chapter 17, he declared, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, 
We ought not to think that the divine grace is like silver or gold or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And surely this concern for man's forgiveness reaches all the way through 2,000 years of human history, right into this room this morning. For the Bible declares that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Peter wrote, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus' thoughts were on all of us in that cry for forgiveness upon the cross. Our sins were as present at the scene of the cross as fully as the sins of the Roman soldiers and the Jewish religious leaders. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. He wrote to the Galatians, the churches in Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Each of us were sinners in need of forgiveness long before we ever became aware of that need. And all those long years of sin before I came to know the Lord, I had no idea I was sinning against God. I had no idea that every sin that I committed was heaped upon Jesus as he bore our sin and my sin upon the cross. I had no idea of my part in that scene at Golgotha, that my sin, though committed almost 2,000 years later, were among those that he bore upon that cross. And it was only as I came to know him that I realized that I had not only sinned against people, that I had wronged people, but that I had sinned against God. And we notice Jesus' provision for the forgiveness of our sins. He prayed for our forgiveness while at the same time paying the price that was needed for the forgiveness of our sins. Upon that cross, Peter wrote and he said, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. There's a temptation on the part of some to attempt to make some distinction between sins committed ignorantly and sins committed purposely or deliberately. But surely the passage and the point of the passage 
The great heart behind Jesus' prayer is to communicate Jesus' concern for the forgiveness of our sins and that he has brought into human history a forgiveness that can cover even the worst of sins, even the sin being committed on the day of his crucifixion, the sin of crucifying the very Son of God. We received an email some time ago from a man living in Kenya. The radio program is broadcast in Kenya. And this man had listened to the radio show and apparently didn't know who else to turn to, so he sent us an email describing what a complete mess he had made of his life because of his sin. Now he was contemplating suicide as a result, something that two of his brothers and also his father had done. One of our pastors, in receiving that email, forwarded it to a missionary that were involved in, in Nairobi, Kenya, And they set to work on it, and within the church there in Nairobi was someone from this man's tribe. And that man went, identified this man and found him, brought him to church, and the pastor, after the service, began to speak to him and a friend that he had brought to church that day as well. And ultimately, they ended up giving their life to the Lord, but... They were so convicted of their sinful lifestyles that they said they didn't think that they were good enough for God. That keeps a lot of people away from God. None of us are good enough for God. But Jesus' statement, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, reassures us that he loves us no matter what sins we've committed And that he has a forgiveness that is as great as any sin that we have committed, as great as any lifetime of sin that we have committed. Imagine living far from God in sin and then being unsure about approaching him, having a because of a doubt about his willingness to forgive us. And Jesus completely dispels any doubt with this Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There's an old saying, it goes something like this. There are none that are so good that they don't need to be saved. And there are none so bad that they can't be saved. And I'll tell you, that's good news When a person comes to realize their conviction of the Holy Spirit, their conscience begins to work on them. I mean, here they are going through life and they have beaten down every person in front of them in order to rise to the top. They've slandered, they've ruined lives, they've used people one after another after another for long decades 
and their conscience is completely seared to it. And then one day they wake up and it's a day like any other day or so they suppose. And something happens of the spirit of God bringing a conviction into their life. And it begins to dawn on them the greatness of the sin that they have committed against people and the greatness of the sin that they have committed against God. And the single great piece of news that that person under that conviction needs to hear from God is that God is a forgiving God and willing to forgive us of our sins, no matter how great or how many our sins might be. Of God's forgiveness, we're told that there is no sin that any of us have ever committed that is greater than God's willingness to forgive. Isaiah wrote and he said, speaking, God speaking through him, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Peter speaking again in Acts chapter 3 spoke to that religious crowd, Repent, therefore, and be converted. That is, that your sins may be blotted out, so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There's no sin that God will not forgive, that he cannot forgive in the life of one who turns to him. Someone says, well, what about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a lifelong rejection of the conviction of the Holy Spirit concerning our, our sin and our failure to come to Christ. When we come to Christ, there is no sin he is unwilling to forgive. His forgiveness of our sins, the Bible teaches, is so complete that he forever separates them from us. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. It's interesting that he doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. You take a globe and if you go in a circle from north to south, you go all the way down to the south pole and you begin to go uh, uh, turn that corner and you begin to go north again. And then you go turn the corner of the north and you begin to go south again. And if he were to say that our sin was separated as far as from the north to the south, then our sin would be separated from us the width of the earth. But when he says our sin is separated from us as far as the east is from the west, it means it's separated from us infinitely. You take that same globe and you go in a circle to the east and you can go around and around and around and around and around that globe and never stop going to the east. You'll never go west. That's how completely he has separated our sin from us. And his forgiveness of our sin is so complete, the Bible says, that he remembers it no more. Again, Isaiah chapter 43. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. God speaking, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, you shall know the Lord, for they shall for they 
All shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. That's wonderful. To come to God and say, God, I want to talk to you about that thing that I did wrong 20 years ago. And he says, what thing? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Go back to the Bible and remember what I said about your work, about your sin. And if I don't remember it, you have no need to remember it. And how do we receive this forgiveness? We receive it through faith. Paul wrote and he said, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, then we will be saved We receive this forgiveness by putting our faith or our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and for salvation. As we would repent of our sin and our selfishness and our own self-will and direction, turn away from it, say, I'm done with that. I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to go in that direction in life anymore. I want to repent. People think repentance is some terrible word. Not when you want to change. Repentance is a privilege. The person comes and says, I won't, don't want anything to do with that anymore. I want to turn from that. I want a new life. I want a new direction. And then I turn to Christ. And I say, I put my faith, I put my trust in you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of my sins. And when a person does that, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit comes into that person's life. They're born again by the Holy Spirit, begin a personal relationship with God. All of it is received as a gift. And with that receiving of Christ into my life, I receive his forgiveness of my sin, God's forgiveness of my sin. As concerned as Jesus is for our forgiveness, he will not force it on us. God is a perfect gentleman. He'll never force himself onto any person. The Bible declares that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Peter wrote that by the Spirit of God. Paul wrote the same thing to Timothy But he said concerning God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his will for us. That's his desire for us. That each of us would be forgiven of our sins in a relationship with God. But we must we must decide individually whether we will put our trust in him in order to receive that forgiveness of our sin. The greatest need, the single greatest need for each one of us, sinners that we are, is the forgiveness of our sin. There's no hatred in Jesus upon that cross, only a desire for their repentance and their salvation. There is no hatred in Jesus' heart toward you this morning. No matter what you've done against others or against him. No matter what you've said against others or even said against him. There is only a longing on his heart for your repentance 
and your salvation. In the midst of all of the physical pain, all of the blasphemies and the mocking and the revilings which were heaped upon his heart and his mind, none of those things dominated him at that moment in time. None of those things were at the forefront of his mind. His great concern was for our forgiveness and salvation. And may that concern for our forgiveness and our salvation leave us wonderfully humbled and awed today. It's funny, the Apostle Paul, he never ceased to be awed by God's forgiveness of his sins. After walking with God for long decades, after serving the Lord for long decades, these simple truths, these foundational truths of Christianity never ceased to impact his heart. He wrote to Timothy and he said, this is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Yes, we were purchased by his blood, but that blood would have never been shed apart from this heart of Christ that's revealed in this statement. It's his love for our souls. He loved our souls long before we ever loved our souls. He valued our souls long before we ever valued our souls. What amazing Savior we have. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. If you are not yet a Christian here this morning, Jesus is concerned about your soul and about your forgiveness. And if you're equally concerned, then today is the day for your salvation there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our time, and they're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you as that man did in Kenya. So easy because salvation is a free gift. They'd love to pray with you to receive Christ into your life today and all of the forgiveness that he brings, the fresh start that he brings to our lives and then to give you a Bible and some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. For those of us who already know the Lord, let's just remain seated and ask the worship team to come forward now and lead us in singing a closing worship song of praise to the Lord for the greatness of God's forgiveness toward us. We have a forgiving God. Never, ever, ever, ever allow anything to cause you to lose your awe over that. We have a forgiving God. 
And we are a forgiven people. We give you praise for that this morning, Lord. Jesus, you are a sinner Savior. And Father, thank you for sending a Savior who so perfectly matched our needs. And we give you praise, Father, in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.